Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Derbyshire Wildlife Trust podcast with me, Ian Pringle. It's that wonderful time of year. We're just turning, finally, from winter to spring. It's the 30th of March as I record this episode. And any time now, those wonderful bluebells will be popping out of the undergrowth. And a great place to see those is in Lee Wood, which is a Derbyshire Wildlife Trust conservation area near Cromford. And it's a really good place to visit because not only the woods, but also there is a wonderful special building there called the Aqueduct Cottage. For a very long time, this building was in a complete state of disrepair, but it has now been lovingly restored by volunteers for Derbyshire Wildlife Trust. It's a truly beautiful building with a wonderful history. So I went down to find out more about it. Or at least I wanted to. But on that particular day, my internal compass had suffered a malfunction. Because the aqueduct cottage is really not this difficult to find. Hello. Good morning. Were you coming to the aqueduct cottage? Yeah. Uh, okay. I'm now on the high peak junction. Uh, I can see a number of buildings. Whether any of them are the aqueduct cottage I'm not sure this looks like it mm -mm. no yeah I saw what I've done now is I've walked right up to the A6 a lost person looking right. for aqueduct cottage <laughs> I thought you might <laughs> just carry on straight just keep going straight down here on this side of on the canal ah oh, okay yeah. great thank you very much okay. cheers Good morning. You got any good pictures? Water greaves, but no water voles. Are you after water voles? Yeah. Are you okay? Do you see water voles regularly here? Uh, it's five years since I came, since the road closed. I haven't been for quite a while, but yeah, five years ago I used to come quite a bit. Well, I can't. I've seen them in afternoon once before, but uh, right. it can be a bit. Um, can't really tell what they do. We're going to cross over the River Derwent and I can see now a little cottage just on the other side of the bridge that crosses the Derwent. Of course, the other side of the aqueduct that crosses the, the Derwent. So, my name is Ron Common. I'm the volunteer project manager for the restoration of Aqueduct Cottage. Um, and I first got involved with the project back in 2016 when I joined a team called Derwentwise, uh, which uh, was a team that Derbyshire Wildlife Trust uh, had, were hosting a programme of about 50 landscape improvement uh, projects around the Lower Derwent Valley. I was uh, handed within my, the first week a file on Aqueduct Cottage, um, read about its history, uh, and saw some amazing historical photographs uh, of the cottage in its heyday. And it was honestly just a beautiful, beautiful site. It was like a fairy tale cottage. I'm Lisa Whittam and I'm Director of Wilder Communities at Derbyshire Wildlife Trust. So I oversee communities and volunteering work. So that's how I got involved in the Aqueduct Cottage project around four and a half years ago. To look at the kind of space and see how we can raise funds for it, um, get the community involved um, and sort of support um, Ron and the volunteers really. I came down to the site uh, and then 
outside. I mean, to be honest, uh, I could barely see the cottage from the towpath because it's surrounded uh, by trees and that were growing around it, under it, and th even through the walls. Yeah, I mean, in fact, <clears throat> uh, it's now been restored. The, the external appearance is pretty much as the same as the original cottage, and that's deliberate. Um, and uh, it's absolutely stunning. But um, way back then, um, it was it had no roof, no floors, and there were holes in the wall. Uh, and there was a survey done which uh, highlighted the fact that the, it was close to collapse. So it was pretty important we, we did something quickly. The support from the community has been absolutely amazing. Um, we've been really overwhelmed by it actually. Um, so we first off started, when we started this project, we were looking at how we would get the budget to build the, the cottage. Um, there was no funding set aside for it, so we had to had to look at how we were going to fund it all. <laughs> so that was interesting. Um, so one of the first things we did was um, a buy a brick campaign. I donated uh, for some bricks, so got two under the left window. Because I don't know how long this building's going to be here for, maybe in two, three hundred years, who knows? So to look through that little window with my name on that bricks, special to me. And I have children too, so I think that's going to be something special to leave for them. We sold loads of bricks, yeah. Right. I mean, the really good thing was Ron had already established the Friends of Aqueduct Cottage Facebook group, so we had a bit of a base, so we could start working with people um, and talking to people who were already invested in the in the project um, and interested in the cottage and the history. Um, and also, as a wildlife trust, obviously, we've got about 18,000 members. Um, right. <laughs> so it's quite nice to be able to tell them about something different and something new that we were taking part in, so that was really good. August 2016, and there's a photograph now hanging on the wall upstairs, in the, uh, which you'll see in a moment, of how the cottage looked back then. Um, but the other thing that struck me was, as I was down here, a number of locals came up and shared their memories of the place. And it was obvious that this is a really much-loved ruin, um, because locals have been here for a long time, and they remember when it was occupied, and um, were very sad to see that it declined over a very long period, about 40 years. And so we're curious to know uh, if the Derbyshire Wildlife Trust were going to do anything with it. They didn't have any information. So I thought, well, you know, with all the historical provenance, the beautiful location, and this is a popular tourist uh, uh, location, with something like 50 to 80,000 people walk along the towpath, plus the local affection for the building, thought, you know, this is, a, this is obviously something that we need to do something about. And if I was feeling that way, the chances are that everybody else would, if we could just get that information out there. We can just walk along if you Keep like. going this way. Yeah, we can stop if you, wanna, if you don't want to go too high. We can just perch, if that's easier. <laughs> yeah, we can perch, yeah. I absolutely love the view here. Yeah. Got the river flowing through. Um, and then you've got this sort of industrial heritage yep. with that chimney in the background. And then the aqueduct, it's just all here. It's a feast for the eyes, really. This is an absolutely stunning spot, and that's yeah. what we're trying to tell people about. Um, and uh, of course, as soon as I saw the, read the file on the cottage, and they said, well, you've got a project management background. Would you be interested? And thought, absolutely. Do you want to take us around the cottage then? Yeah, cool. So we'll head over the this little bridge here. What's the purpose of this very small bridge? Well, this is the uh, Leewood Arm, and this is um, actually the, um, the story of the cottage is very much associated with this um, extent, this, this cut. It was built by Peter Nightingale in 1802. He had got factories um, at Leebridge. Uh, in fact, John Smedley's uh, was the factory he built uh, originally and then sold to John Smedley, and that's, I think, the world's oldest continuously manufacturing uh, business. But so Nightingale had got um, businesses in the village, and he saw an opportunity to connect them 
with the Cromford Canal. So he was actually a Florence Nightingale's great uncle. He was an industrialist, he was actually a big hitter. He was uh, one of Arkwright's financiers, um, and it was all part of the sort of industrial development of the valley, and Nightingale was a very smart cookie. He was a, a financier, um, and uh, he'd got a lot of business interests himself. In fact, he made a lot of the, the Nightingale family fortune. So um, the story of the canal is that um, the, the Cromford Canal Company agreed to let him build this on one condition, that he maintained the water level in the new cut, one foot above the canal, Cromford Canal. They didn't want him taking their water, because water was everything in those days. So in order to do that, he diverted a beck from Lee Bridge into his new canal, and he put a stop lock here to uh, control the water level. So as the boats were passing, um, it made sure that uh, the water wasn't taken from the Cromford Canal, it would actually come from his side. Right. Now, because there was a lock, you needed a lock keeper, because it was operated six days a week, um, and that's the reason Aqueduct Cottage was built, oh. to house the lock keeper and lengthman. Yeah. Uh, originally, it was just half the size we see today. The left-hand half is the original one-up, one-down uh, lock keeper's cottage. Right. Okay, now um, the canal was used about 1934 um, and I think 1936 this concrete footbridge was put in place and the stop lock actually went uh, actually only about 17 years after they started and that's a whole new other story but the, the, the reason we've got the concrete bridge here is this is the now public right of way uh, into Leewood. Just, uh, just before we go to the cottage just yep. uh, point out the steps that we have here are a significant part of the, uh, the project. Cottage has always been the gateway to Leewood, so what we want to do is encourage people to go to the back of the cottage, walk up those steps that we've built, you know, the volunteers and staff have put so much effort into making access from the cottage up to the wood for the first time in hundreds of years, it's been really accessible now. Um, so we want to encourage people to come up into the wood, find out more about the species that are here, find out more about um, the, the, you know, the issues that are facing nature and the climate issues, just generally. And we can use Aqueduct Cottage as a really good uh, way of ed educating and talking to people and having conversations about that, that issue. It was very important right. as we were coming up with the design, the, the, the restoration philosophy, um, to have a sympathetic restoration. Um, and we really wanted to ensure that the exterior appearance of the cottage was as close as possible to the original. And so that included uh, putting on a stone roof um, and the stone tiles we got, we're very fortunate that our, our restoration builder, Andrew Churchman, found these uh, tiles. They're called uh, Derbyshire Free Birch and it's the same type of stone tile that would fit on, on the original cottage. Um, there's four and a half tons of uh, stone there. Um, and on, on the roof? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> and it has Welsh slate, reclaimed Welsh slate on the back, which is the same as the original cottage. When it was extended, the, um, they took the stone tiles from the rear of the original cottage and put them on the front of the extension okay. so that the front was all matching. The front looked nicer than the back. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but by then, um, uh, Welsh slate was then commercially available. It's actually a, an easier to use material. And so they, they uh, did the back with, uh, with, with Welsh slate. And so we've done the same thing, both with reclaimed materials. The second thing um, uh, to point out is that all the walls have been rebuilt by Andrew, but our volunteers have been trained by him to do the line pointing. So all the pointing you see, which is an outstanding feature of the cottage, um, the volunteers have done that. Andrew has done about the top left-hand quarter of the building. It's, it's it, brilliantly it, done because you wouldn't, it, it all sort of matches up 
so well. Yeah, and it's and it's the right material to use because it's it's breathable, of course, uh, and same inside as you'll see in a moment. Um, we had a, a local plasterer um, do the plastering for us, and that's all lime plaster. Uh, the floors we've put uh, lime creek floors down. Um, previously, somebody put concrete down. That's the wrong kind of material, so we we took that out and put lime creek. So. Um, traditional building methods and materials have been used as far as possible. Even the windows that you see, which have got these central pivots, made uh, locally um, by a company who we gave the design of the original window to, the centre pivot opening, um, so that um, they replicate what was here originally. So the whole front of the, uh, the ex exterior of the cottage is very much as the original would have been built. I always imagine that cottages like this, the stones that they're built of, were stones that were found locally, but I know clearly Welsh slate wasn't, so is that right? Or were these yeah. stones brought in from somewhere else? No, this stone would be uh, quarried literally on the site. Yep. And there you can see parts of the uh, uh, the, the bank here uh, where there's uh, big holes in the, uh, in, the, in the hillside where they've, uh, they've quarried the stone. Um, so that would have taken care of the stone and then the, the wood uh, would have come along the canal, along they uh, probably also brought in from uh, one of the local woodyards, uh, but that would be brought in by canal boat. And as luck would have it, um, our timbers were so large uh, for the roof that the uh, lorry was too big to get down the track, so we actually used the canal boat to bring the roof timbers, much the same as would have been done 220 years ago. Ron Common called me on one Tuesday, I think it was. Hugh Potter. I'm a skipper on the Birdswood and I'm the Friends of the Cromford Canal Archivist. And uh, said, so Hugh, we've got a problem. Um, we've got these huge beams for the roof. To, uh, to get to the cottage and the vehicle that's bringing them can't take them to High Peak Junction because of the tight turn into it. Have you got any ideas what we could do? And I think he was fishing and I said, foolishly, I said, well, if you could bring them to Cromford Wharf, we've got a boat there and boats were designed to carry things so we could carry them down to the cottage, to, to the aqueduct for you and you could carry them from there to the cottage. So uh, by Thursday, uh, this, was, this was all arranged and uh, we, we loaded all these timbers onto the roof of the boat and came down to, uh, to here, where we are at, uh, by the pump house, unloaded them and uh, then manhandled them down to the cottage. So uh, I think we sort of saved the day on that occasion. So that was a nice moment, and just uh, they helped us out, and, uh, but it was a great day. That's a lovely part of the restoration yeah, process, yeah. that you actually, uh, there was a reenactment. Yeah, as well. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, the same applies to a lot of the materials. Uh, we did a calculation of the day and it was staggering what we realised. Over the four years of the restoration, we have, our volunteers have moved around about 100 tonnes of material. One of my most memorable days was bringing the roof trusses up. It was absolutely tippling down. It was freezing cold and we had these trusses on our shoulders. And there's a photograph of us coming over the bridge and I have got my shoulders up to my ears. And you see all the double chins. And the hood is pulled down over my eyes. And I look so miserable. And I'll tell you, that's really how I felt. It was horrible. But we've all done days like that. Nice days, bad days. We've, we've done them all. It's just captured you. And you, you get up in the morning and you think, I'm going. I've seen it grow bit by bit by bit by bit by bit. There was a tremendous amount of material to remove from the inside of the cottage, because bearing in mind for 40 years there was no roof. And so there was about a metre of material of soil, debris, uh, fallen masonry, uh, tree, tree roots to be taken out. Uh, and of course I mentioned the steps. So in total, around about 50 tonnes of material went off the site. And then there was about 50 tonnes of material came into the site 
And because we don't have any road access, it's all had to be carried mostly by hand. And we've used wheelbarrows for 300 yards along the towpath to the water. Wow. Uh, there's about 2,500 wheelbarrow trips, and it's 300 yards, and that equates to 826 miles. You know, you look at the Lower Derwent Valley itself, it is its natural heritage and industrial heritage that makes it what it is. So we, we've tried carefully, and you'll see with the interpretation that we've put in the cottage as well, we've tried carefully to try and reflect both sides of that. You know, we want people to know about the history and the heritage of, of the area, but also we want people to appreciate nature and wildlife and do their bit to support wildlife and, and try and sort of, you know, lead nature's recovery. And we need to do that by some of the messages that we put in the cottage as well. So it's been a really interesting mix of trying to get the balance right for the cottage, really. Um, but we, we think we've managed that. And, and you know, we're, we're really lucky. Leewood is absolutely stunning. And so people come to the cottage and it isn't difficult to encourage them to get up into Leewood because it's just beautiful. We, we want to use it so that people will come and look at the bluebells and the daffodils and find out more about the birds that are in here and, and help us with monitoring and surveying and, and all that kind of work that there is in the in the woods as well. Huge, yeah, huge yeah. bluebell um, carpet in Leewood. Yeah. We're very lucky, yeah, it's, it's really stunning when they when they come out. So yeah, it's a really nice spot to come and have a look. Wiping my feet before I'm coming. Lovely cottage, and the first thing that strikes me is these tiles on the floor. Very nice. Yeah, we, we're delighted with these. The reclaimed uh, quarry tiles, the uh, traditional red and, and dark blue. And the reason for uh, using these is because that's what the cottage had um, in the 1950s. And we know that because we've got a sketch, uh, we've got um, personal accounts from uh, a lady who lived here. Um, now, we didn't know when we first came to the cottage that they were here, but of the meter of, of soil and what have you but on day one we dug down uh, and i was really curious to see if these tiles was, the original tiles were there and they were uh, albeit all broken so we decided to replicate those and we found these uh, reclaimed tiles which are exact uh, copies of what was here so that's uh, that's why you see uh, the and forest. I, and I'm curious, you mentioned a, a lady that used to live here, is this somebody that was that you spoke to yeah. Still living? Or? Yeah, she is. She's one of only three people alive today. Who, her name is uh, Frances Faber, and she lives near Nottingham, um, but she's been following the project since we started. Um, she paid a visit in 2017. Her daughter brought her here, and it was a tearful reunion. Um, she was here as a 15-year-old girl in 1954. And this is the first time she'd been back. Goodness. Um, and, why, and why did she live here as a 15-year-old girl? Was it her family? Yeah, yeah, her family. Um, they... Uh, uh, lived here in the 50s, um, I think the last uh, family to live here in fact, um, and uh, she uh, was made aware of the restoration through her daughter, who joined the, the Facebook page that we have, and who, who brought her down. Um, and what we um, agreed is that she would give a living history interview, and the transcript of that interview is on the website. And I only had five questions for her, and she spoke for an hour, uh, all her memories. But she'd also brought along these fantastic sketches, and you'll see one of them upstairs in a moment, which uh, detail everything she could remember inside the cottage, which included the red and uh, dark blue tiles, and the, the stone flags you'll see in the, in, in the parlour in a second. So that was a very special moment. Okay. Now, we've, um, the only thing that's uh, different to the original cottage is we've got this... Uh, um, lighting system set up which is uh, battery, battery uh, powered at the moment yeah. and we're going to connect a solar uh, source to provide triple charge so it should be green energy to a large extent but it just helps it uh, helps people with visitors to see the interpretation panels. These uh, photos of the cottage um, uh, and uh, several of them are on the website and this is this kind of thing 
that I saw before I started of how it used to be. Now, of course, in 2016, when the tree was surrounded by trees, you couldn't really tell. But these photographs were part of the uh, report that was done and gave an idea of what it could be like again. Yes. And of yeah. course, that's why we've been so careful to ensure that the external appearance replicates the original cottage, because it is truly a fairy tale cottage. So now we're in the parlour, um, and what I didn't mention when we're in the kitchen and living area is that that would be where people would spend most of their time. Bearing in mind that families of up to 10 members would be uh, living at this cottage, um, you can imagine how cramped it would be. And this part... Ten people. Yeah, there'll be three generations. Grandma, her, her, daughter, her children, and their children's children. Um, there were ten people living here around about 1910. The parlour was Grandma's best room, and it was kept for best. So you only came in at certain Sundays or Easter, things like that. It's quite amazing, isn't it? They cram into that small room, but that's how they lived. Yeah. Um, but we were delighted that the... Uh, and they wouldn't let themselves use one of the you know, when they needed so much space, and yet yeah. they would st it was still more important to keep this, yeah. the posh bit, you yes. know. Yeah. Well, the thing we've learned, and this is a beautiful uh, part of the, the people story of the place, is that um, Grandma Eaton, who was uh, head of the family that lived here the longest, about 60 years, from 1882 to 1946, um, they had st their standards. So they would actually do their chores in the morning, um, and then at lunchtime, they would um, get cleaned up and get changed in the afternoon into their, you know, their fine, finest clothes, and um, they would be smart in the afternoon. Uh, and that was the case for all the family, as you will see from one of the photographs upstairs. And so, even though it was very basic living in a remote cottage, um, they still had you know, good standards of, uh, uh, of care and hygiene and everything else, and how they looked after themselves. Upstairs is very different. This uh, upstairs activity room um, is very transparent. So you can see how the building is constructed or has been reconstructed. So you can see every stone, every tile, every peg hanging on the tile. And the, these stone tiles are um, really very special um, because it's not very often that the, uh, the restoration builder gets to do something like this. I think he's done six in his lifetime. Yeah. But you can see how they've been placed onto the uh, battens and using uh, an aluminium peg, they literally hang them onto the onto the battens. And the way you constructed this, but you can see that they get smaller as you go towards the ridge. The largest. I can, and the battens get closer together. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's um, this reducing courses is part of the design uh, of the roof. The, the the largest tiles at the front, they are about 60 kilos. They're about a metre square, um, and to get them to the cottage we had to bring them one by one on sack barrows. Um, and to see Andrew hoisting these up, drilling them, putting them in position, hammering in the peg, um, and then doing that for the whole of the first two rows, it was quite something. And that's what he did row by row, and picking out uh, the next sort of size on as he went towards the ridge and then finishing off with the ridge tiles. So it's an absolute masterclass. Yeah. And watching this being uh, constructed was, uh, was a real, real treat. The way he did it was outside we've got some ground and he had two wooden pegs in, in the ground which re uh, represented the width of the, the cottage and so he would select from those we, we collected uh, the correct size, trim them slightly to make sure they were a perfect fit. So he'd got a set, a row if you like, yeah. who then one by one lift, hoist them up to the roof uh, and put them in position 
and then he'd do the next row exactly the same and the next row and so on until he got to the very top and there were lots of tiles because they're small um, it, and it happened over uh, about three or four weeks the other thing about these was they they were on a, a field barn in derbyshire for about a hundred years before they found their way to the reclaim yard the reclaim yard was about to close down for business and andrew managed to, to see them and, and buy them it's a beautiful space and that's why uh, when the original business case was put together we saw this being an opportunity, given that the central wall had fallen down, we saw an opportunity to make this an open plant, a single room, uh, that we could uh, use for activities and that, that is uh, now the intention. So while our trust will use it for training purposes um, but we're also hoping to set up um, collaborations with people uh, who deal with heritage crafts and rural crafts and quite a lot of um, community groups interested in coming and using this space. Mm. So um, uh, we're looking forward to that. Part of the Aqueduct Cottage project has been about accessibility as well. So like I say, we've made it more accessible um, and we've been really fortunate that one of the funders that we had um, allowed us to put a sculpture trail in as well. So we've been able to sort of point out places across the woods. So there's 10 um, way markers and sculptures um, that people can go and see as they come through the woods and so we've got um, information there that people can take away with them and they can do like self-guided walks around Leewood so there's a lovely meadow area you know that you've got the river it's you've got the canal it's it, there's loads to come and see which is why it's a really popular spot which is why it's sort of you know perfect combination for us really you know we're, we're really fortunate that we've got people that are just wanting to talk to us because they're coming along visiting the area um, and they're genuinely interested about the project and about the restoration and the, and the woods. So it's been a really lovely um, community engagement project for us. Some people will just come because they're interested in the local um, industrial heritage, but we're hoping that by having a conversation with them, by having volunteers and people staff talking to them about Lee Wood and about the local area and about, you know, things like natural flood management and about some of the projects that we're doing in the Derwent Valley as Derbyshire Wildlife Trust, we can also encourage a conversation around nature and wildlife as well. So even if that wasn't their primary reason for coming here, then that might be something that they take away with them. Yeah. And one of the other big projects that we have at the moment is around um, Team Wilder, which is about getting people to take small actions for wildlife in their own, either their local community, or it might just be in their window box, you know, it might just be in their back garden. And we can, we can talk to people about those types of projects as well, because once we've engaged that conversation where we're talking about, you know, the area and nature, then we can give people sort of suggestions and help and advice and support so that they can take things back into their own uh, communities or their own back gardens as well. Well, the cottage is the most photographed building on the Cromford Canal. Um, and so, but there's plenty of artists that obviously love this area as well. And I've been uh, fortunate to receive several paintings from local artists. Um, and in actual fact, right from the beginning when we took the trees down from around the cottage, local artists did some paintings which adorned the outside and the, the boardwalk windows for about two and a half years. And we've kept them. You can see uh, four of them at the end of the cottage there. And there's another, uh, there's one somewhere with the, with the badger. And there it is. Um, so, uh, but in addition to that, we've decided to uh, use some of the historical photos to make a, a display because there are stories behind each of them as well. Mm. So this oh. is Mr. Bowler. He's the last uh, person to live in the cottage. He Mr. Lived... Bowler's off somewhere with two buckets. Is any idea where Mr. Bowler's going, Ron? I do. He was going to fetch his water from the spring because that's the only source of water. Um, it was a daily chore, which he hated. Um, for those that uh, knew him, we've been told that he, he hated having to fetch his water two or three times a day, but the only thing he could do with the, as you can see, the wooden yoke across his shoulder and his two buckets. So he'd go to High Peak Junction 
um, which is 300 yards away, or it could go into um, a field across the, from the canal because there's a spring that uh, came out um, from below the canal. And that was it, and that was the drinking water. Uh, before Mr. Bowler, we know that families used canal water for washing their clothes. Um, but you can imagine that was a, a daily chore and quite a heavy one with up to 10 family members here. There'd be a lot of water. Yeah. Um, but of course, the cottage is completely disconnected. There's no services of any kind. How they lived in the cottage linked to, you know, having to use the waterways and having to live in a much more natural and sustainable yeah. way. But their um, impact on the environment was minimal. And over there is a huge vegetable garden because um, over to the, the side of the cottage, because they were pretty much self-sufficient because you had to be. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. So, again, it's an interesting, um, it, it's a way of, if, you, if that isn't your particular interest, area of interest, it's a way of bringing that conversation into the whole sort of history history and restoration of the cottage as well. So the oldest photo we've got is of the Eaton family stood outside the cottage and this is the photo taken on a plate camera in 1894. Yeah. And it's incredibly detailed, you can even see the wooden yoke hanging on the, on the door frame there. And you can just now imagine the, the, the life living here with a, a large family and uh, Anne Eaton is in the, in the photo, she's the, sort of, like the matriarch. How we came across this amazing photo was a, a couple, a family uh, walking down the canal about three years ago had the original photo in a frame in their loft that um, the lady's father, late father, had given her. She didn't know why she had the photo, but as she approached the cottage, she said, I'm sure that the, I've got the photo which is of this cottage, as it turns out it was, um, and the reason the fam uh, she had got uh, the photo is because their family is related to these, this family five generations earlier. Okay. So their daughter went on to Ancestry and checked the following day and sent me the delightful news that, blimey, there are ancestors. <laughs> this was our original family home. Another lovely story is uh, of Faye Bark. I mentioned the lady who used to live here. So a few years ago, she came along and um, you can see here um, next to a photo of Faye, a lovely picture, which is a, a blown up version of a sketch that she did of the cottage and everything she could remember that was in it and around it. Incredibly detailed, um, and that's why we have it in the exhibition. Because it's Faye <coughs> was not a bad drawer. It's, <laughs> a, it's a really good sketch, isn't it? Yeah, and this is one of four. Um, and um, it was so, such a delight to get this. And I mentioned earlier, uh, on the very first day, on the 28th of October 2019, it was day one on the restoration, all the volunteers were on site and we were uh, digging, uh, uh, clearing the, the cottage and we went to the front door and as you can see on the sketch she's put in the kitchen, uh, kitchen floor, terracotta tiles, red and black. Oh. And so it helped inform us about what was here and yeah. the stone tiles in the parlour, that's also on there, floor slabs, a stone and so it was a lovely thing to actually discover them, uh, given that this was the cottage that she remembered in 1954, and there we were in 2019, amazing. and, and uh, uncovering them for the first yeah. time they'd seen the daylight for probably 40 years. It must have been an amazing process for her to come back here and sort of and those memories to come back to her and then draw that sketch. Oh, yeah, brilliant. Oh, very much so. Yeah. Um, and it was a bit of an emotional moment for me um, yesterday because I received, I mean, I made a promise back to Faye when she visited in 2017, uh, uh, we're gonna restore your family home. And she grabbed hold of my hand and looked into my eye and said, I know you were wrong. Um, I thought, wow, I've got to now. <laughs> um, yeah. And yesterday I received a, a message from her to say thank you. And um, it was a very special moment. Now she's sadly um, uh, not in the best of health and uh, she's, uh, she's confined to her bed, but her daughter is relaying all the progress 
Uh, and I said, I've done that week by week um, because we post all the photographs on the Facebook page and she sees it. So to have to come, you know, to get to the point where we can open the cottage and we've completed it and fulfilled the promise. Uh, and when she was part of you know, the, the initial sort of motivation in the first place, there's a special, special moment. All of this has been possible basically because of the volunteers, the community support, uh, our funders um, and various uh, tradespeople that have been uh, helping us. My wife and I have, have done the dry stone wall, the big retaining wall on that garden. So when we started that had about four major trees in there. So the wall that used to be there had moved forward about a metre. Pushed forward by the, the roots of the tree. Yeah, the yeah. yeah, so that then had to be completely uh, dug out and a new uh, sort of foundation created. So we got one of the professional wallers to come down, Trevor Rag, who's a, a, a master waller for the dry, Derbyshire Drystone Wallers Association. So he came down and talked to us about how to do a retaining wall of that size because we hadn't done one before. So we got him to uh, give us some pointers so we could uh, get some confidence. And he was saying, yeah, well, when you build your, your walls with your mortar, you don't put your mortar right across the wall. And I'm saying, why not? He says, well, you build it like a dry stone wall, dry in the middle. Why, Trevor? Well, where does the water go if you've got lime water there? Oh, yeah, it makes complete sense. But we wouldn't have done that. And we've learnt, all of us, so much. And then we did it through COVID and because my wife and I are um, a bubble. It was very quiet, nobody around. We could then consider we were working, so we were allowed to continue to work, yeah. volunteer, yeah. during the uh, COVID period. It was definitely positive because uh, both of us could keep active, you know, so we weren't staying at home doing nothing. So uh, we, we were able to get out. Yeah. And although we couldn't work with any other volunteers, uh, we, as a bubble, could actually keep working. Um, we just hope that this, this place now is used by people. Um, it's been followed uh, by people all over the world. We have, say, about 4,000 members on our Facebook page. And every week we post Friends of Aqueduct Cottage. Um, and it was literally to inform locals who were wondering what was going to happen with it in the first place when I started in 2016. Today, as I say, it's, um, there's about 4,000 members and people follow it from around 40 countries around the world. Um, and people are literally making visits to the cottage, part of their holiday plans when they come from Australia, New Zealand and so on. So um, it's, uh, it's had a great impact. My wife and I have come from Long Eaton. Our friend has come from Sherwood and uh, my brother-in-law has come from Church Broughton. We do, we do, we do like his um, uh, heritage. You like heritage? Yeah, I'll do, I'll do like history, anything like that, I'll, okay. I'll, I'll, I'll really love. And have you come far to come here today? Uh, no, only from Old Tuckton in Chesterfield. Oh, as well. okay. okay. Plus, it's, it's an, an, our wedding anniversary today as well, it's fall, not the same day. Congratulations on the wedding. Thank you very much. I came across it by chance on my phone, basically, and I was drawn to it and thought, oh, yeah. I mentioned it to my husband and it was a no-brainer because it's oh, yeah. we're drawn into like you've said drawn into that kind of thing so yeah. had you heard about the sub the restoration of the of no not until, no, but until I, then no having come across it it's found it extremely interesting yeah yeah just yeah. been a lovely little walk did you go up into the yes woods? yeah yes. we went so far we wanted to go and see uh, florence's seat but we didn't get that far so we came back down again so we didn't want to be late We've still got half an hour to go, yeah, so it's just... You never know so with hills, do you? How no, long is it's just... How long is it going to take? Coming up is worse than coming down. I've been coming here for the last couple of years. 
just as a photographer, documenting it, finding the history. The flooring I'm really impressed with. The quarry uh, tiles? Yeah, and the fact that the people involved have been on the hands and knees of a wire brush scrubbing. And just, uh, <clears throat> I like the, the whole concept of the fact that it's there for the community. People can go in, keep warm, stay warm, enjoy it. Years ago, my husband used to say it was his ass when we used to come walk. It's a joke to the grandchildren. This has so, been going on about 40 years now. Yeah, We've always say. walked down here for years and years and years. And my dad used to tell uh, Jane's kids and the grandkids that he used to live there. So we've got pictures of it from 40 years ago when it was derelict and it got worse and worse and worse. Photos. Now they bring their kids here and tell them that great granddad used to live here. So it's, a, it's, it's like yeah. an ongoing story. It so is, obviously yeah. when this, because we've been waiting for opening for a year or so, obviously we're in lockdown. Yeah. So we'll hopefully get the mum to have a look around it. The mum and dad's never had a car, so they used to travel around bus and train to get everywhere. So. Oh, the very so. fit, weren't you then? Uh, I was in the Nightingale home in Derby when I had the oldest son. <laughs> I'd say when, they, when I found out, some of them the Derbyshire Wildlife Trust, yeah. they were going to do a talk. Yeah. And obviously I thought, well, hopefully my mum's still with us so she could come and see it, you know what I mean? All the way through, we have been supported by people who have been wishing as well and um, encouraging us to get to the finish line. And today we've done it. So some final words there from visitors to Aqueduct Cottage on the opening day and that final word from Ron, who was so generous with his time showing us around the cottage and he had so much information. Um, I tried to keep as much in as possible, um, but I had to make some edits. We spoke to lots of other people as well. There was a huge amount of audio from that morning at Aqueduct Cottage um, and I couldn't quite put it all in, but hopefully I've given you a good taster of everything we heard. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that. And if you get the opportunity, get down to Aqueduct Cottage and have a look and also have a look at Lee Woods because I'm pretty sure by now those bluebells will be sprouting out for all to see. Thank you. Goodbye.